Hey, one more thing before you go. Just a quick warning, today's episode is explicit. It contains discussions about sex, drugs, and alcohol use, suicide, and near-death experiences. There is some language that may not be appropriate to those individuals under the age of 18 years old. Discretion is advised. In this episode, several near-death experiences, drug and alcohol addiction, an abusive husband, and a beautiful encounter with Archangel Michael. An incredible journey of triumph over tragedy, and it's not over yet. It's going to inspire you, motivate you, and educate you from a woman who survived it. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Christine Malik. She is a domestic violence survivor, overcome alcohol and drug addiction, had several surgeries and procedures, and had an amazing experience with Archangel Michael that changed her life. Christine is the founder and creator of SASI, S-A-S-S-I, Coach, and Christine Consulting based in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's SASI, S-A-S-S-I. She lives there with her two cats and a red-boned coonhound named Red. Being a survivor and victor herself, she has made it her life's mission to help every woman to be, do, have, sassy, encouraging women to ruffle some feathers and blow some minds. Welcome to the show. As we said earlier in the beginning of this, before we started recording, you have an amazing journey. I mean, I'm familiar with your journey from a different perspective. And because of that, I appreciate so much where you have come from and where you're at right now in the organization that we'll talk about here later. Um in creating that environment for other individuals that are going through this to move forward in life in a very positive way, give them hope and give them opportunity, give them a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I have to say, well done. And I, I, I'm honored to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's, it's, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. You know, it's, I, most everybody, well, we all know that on my podcast, I love to unfold people's lives. So I kind of want to start at the beginning of yours. Uh, let's talk about where you grew up. I grew up in Pennsylvania, a little town was not, not anymore, Allentown, Pennsylvania. I spent about 26 years there, um, moved to Florida with my first husband, spent 30 years there. And of course, now I'm in beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, that's, that's, we have something in common. My parents are from, uh, my, my father in that side of the family is from Pennsylvania, so I'm uh, familiar with portions of it. Uh, he grew up in Allegheny County uh, in that area, so I'm more familiar with Pittsburgh and Allegheny County and everything. I'm assuming Allentown's not that far from there, I would assume. Allentown is, um, would be northwest of Philly a little bit, maybe oh, so 40, down 40 down 60 minutes. Down in that area. Uh, I used to love going back to Pennsylvania as a kid. I loved uh, Kennywood Park. Uh, I, <laughs> we had I was, Hershey Park. <laughs> Hershey Park, yeah. We had, they had Kennywood Park. It's, a, it's almost like a, like a uh, what do they call it, a Magic Mountain? Almost like okay. a Magic Mountain, but I mean... 
I'm up there in age a little bit. I won't say what my real age is, but we'll say up in my seventh, <laughs> in my seventh generation. <laughs> uh, so, I'm approaching my sixth. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 all good. But yeah, we uh, I used to go back there as a kid, and we'd enjoyed uh, Kennywood Park, and that was like a, a blast. I mean, it uh, it uh, positive memories from that perspective, but. Negative memories on the other side, but that's a whole new, different story. So, um, did you go to school? Did you go to college? I did. I um, I never stopped learning. I love learning. My first school out of high school was Northwood Institute in Midland, Michigan. Um, and then I went to, many years later, I went to a school in Florida to learn computers Um Software, hardware, that type of thing. I'm always trying to learn something. Always. What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> a child psychologist and an attorney. <laughs> oh, that well, that, those are some very uh, <laughs> those are kind of I won't say contradicting, but opposite almost. That's pretty. I I I knew because of my childhood and the the trauma that I went through that I needed to help other children. So that's where the child psychologist came in. Um, being an attorney, I always wanted to fight for the underdog and the person that was accused of doing something that they didn't do. So I wanted to be on that side of the table. Yeah, both those make sense, actually, because we're going to talk mm -hmm. about your childhood a little bit here in a few minutes. But mm -hmm. yeah, they both, it both makes good, you know, very good sense. Um, Jimmy brothers, sisters? I have one brother. Um, he is 11 years younger than me. I had a brother that was 11 months younger than me. I lost him. Our whole family lost him when I was 16. That was too bad. That's, I'm sorry yeah, for that. He, his, his official death was, um, and this was in Pennsylvania, it was right around the holidays, Christmas and New Year's, and his official death was ruled that he froze to death. And that is one hell of a way to go. Oh, that's, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, unfortunately, he was involved with drugs, alcohol. Um, he was an alcoholic before he even knew he was an alcoholic. I can remember him at, you know, ninth grade, tenth grade, filling a huge glass with three quarters vodka. The rest of it was orange juice, and that was how he got to school and got throughout through his day. Oh, that's um, that's a. A unique, well, I won't say unique because I talked to a lot of people that grew up in that environment and I grew up in a dysfunctional family myself. Both my parents were alcoholics and so I understand that dynamic from from uh, that perspective. As a child becoming an alcoholic at that early age uh, obviously creates an environment that's very negative no matter how you look at it because of, of circumstances and what transpired. So I'm assuming you said he died of uh, freezing to death with polymeric exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's too, I'm sorry for that. You you had childhood trauma, and the reason you became a, wanted to become a childhood psychologist was because of that trauma. Um, can we talk about that journey a little bit? You know what what took place. I know that I remember the traumas. Um, childhood was not always great. A lot of memories that <clears throat> that do come about are those traumas, those not nice ones. I found out, 
I was actually going to see a hypnotherapist to try and quit smoking when I was in my early 30s. And as she put me under hypnotherapy, we went deeper and deeper and deeper to try and find out where the smoking first started. I had start, both my parents smoked. Uh, they were not drinkers, but they did smoke. Through that hypnosis, as we went deeper and deeper, that's when those memories came out. Um, probably so, and I found out later as I'm going through my healing now and, and six months ago and eight months ago, that's when I found out that the, the abuse from a family member, a higher up family member from my mother's side, um, had molested me from the time I was almost, almost four. Um, and it did not stop. And, and I don't remember it, although uh, until you go into hypnotherapy and, and go through those, those healing processes, I did not know. And it was, it was, it was traumatic. Um, it was many, many years later that I brought it up to my mom. And of course, dealing with it again. And of course, this is before I, I had any healing. Basically, she said that it couldn't have happened. There's no way. I have to be lying. That you know, I'm making this up. I'm looking for the attention. Everything that goes along with it. It hurt, without a doubt. It hurt. Uh, you know, it was at that point where that family member had already passed many years earlier. Um, I can't. It's not like I can confront him. It's not like I can take any action against him. It would be his word against mine. So I moved on. I tried to heal from it. And like I said, I was probably in my 30s, <coughs> excuse me, that, that I found out about it. I realized many years after my mom passed that more than likely the way she dealt with hearing this was to say it didn't happen so that she didn't have to deal with the possibility that maybe it happened to her. She was the eldest of four children and two girls, two boys. This might have been, I don't know, until I can get to heaven and say, hey, what the hell, you know? I don't know. That's the only reason that I can come up with that would be the possibility for her to say, you're lying. Yeah, I found in my experience as an investigator that uh, there is a lot of denial, especially in a certain age group, certain era of, of time, period, that uh, there's a lot of this didn't happen that couldn't have happened, and most of it was was, I'm not saying this was in your case in particular, but this is just what I have found and those out there listening, you know, be aware that there are those that uh, kind of suppress it because it happened to them and they didn't know how to deal with it, didn't understand it, were embarrassed, were felt guilty. And then uh, the guilt compounded itself because it, it happened again to somebody that they had a child with and um the the best thing that they do is just say no didn't happen deny it and they hide it and they suppress it and it unfortunately creates a negative environment from from your perspective you know from the victim's perspective um did you uh i know that you uh you were if i can speak frankly uh you were sexually assaulted at uh age 16. yes and that was also yes. by a family member. Was that the same individual or different individual? That was, no, it was, a, it was a different family member. That was my uncle. He was um, 13 months older than me. So he wasn't, I mean, we were close in age. I grew up with the, my two uncles. 
it was in the beginning, it was the four of us, my two uncles, myself, and my younger brother, the one that I had passed. It was very aggressive, very unwanted. I didn't know what was happening. I tried to push him off. I tried to stop it. But anybody who's had this experience knows it's not always easy. You can't do it. And, and as much as I was athletic at 16 years old, he was definitely bigger and stronger. And it just, I hate to say it, but you get to a point where you're like, okay, just, just get it over and done with. Just finish so I can go on. I think there was a point in my life at, at, at that point that for whatever reason, I seemed to be the target, maybe because of the upbringing. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like I enticed it. It's not like I asked for it. It's not like I said, hey, let's do this. Um, that's it. That was tough. That was tough. You build a shell, you build a wall, you suppress the memories and uh, along with the bad memories, you pr suppress the good memories as, as just as much. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And the fact that it was somebody was, that's in your family, which makes it a trusting individual. I mean, you're supposed to trust your uncle. You're supposed to, you know, believe that your uncle is not a, a person that would do something like that. And that I still had to see him at family functions. We, I mean, we still got together. I had to see him every, almost every day, at least on the weekends. And that, yes, that was, that was hard. That, that was compounds hard. it upon itself. It gives, I'm sure that you went through anger and depression and, um, uh, mostly anger and depression, I'm sure. Um, For suicide came in, or suicide attempt, failed attempt. I don't know. Is it fail or did I fail or was I successful? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's interesting because it. Um, uh, I've never thought about it from that perspective. Obviously, a suicide attempt, at least from my investigation side of it, being a police officer that investigated suicides and suicide attempts. I would say that uh, you survived it. You survived a suicide attempt. I did. That's a positive thing because we're here talking about today and helping other people move forward. Yeah. Let's talk about that suicide attempt. Was that one of your near-death experiences? I know you had mentioned to me that you had some near-death experiences. No, that one wasn't. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. As, as I am on my journey... And as I look back at these incidents and these things that happened in my life, I realize that there was definitely a higher power that was guiding me. Um, we all have it. I believe, in my opinion, um, that we all have that, that call it what you want, God, um, higher power. I'm a recovering alcoholic, drug addict. In fact, I say, hi, my name is Christine. I'm an ick because I've had any, every addiction possible. Um, but I think we all have that something that guides us, something that, that says you're destined for greater things. And that's where, through going through my journey, I have realized that there's always been somebody with me. Um, this, this first attempt was, it was more of a psychological than actually I, the tub was, I had the tub ready. It was filled with water. I had razor blades out. I wanted to slip my wrists and something I couldn't even tell you. I was 16 years old. Um, I had gone through the rape from my uncle. I had lost my brother 
Um, and he and I were extremely close. I was the eldest of three, the only girl. So I was responsible for the household and everything. And mom and dad worked their own business. So they counted on me to keep an eye on my younger brother. And when I got home from school and I had reached that point where the depression just took over. It, it really did. And, and back then, and this is, I was born in 65. So, you know, do the math. We didn't talk about that. And I grew up in that household with that, those generations that everything got swept under the carpet. Um, it's not like I could go to my parents and say, I think I have depression. That was not a term that was used back then. But something stopped me. And, and, and for the life of me, as, as I'm going through my journey, there's, I, I can't tell you what it was. Actually, yes, I can. And thank you. You just reminded me. Here's where, as we talk about these things, more triggers happen, more memories come about. So I was in the tub and the razors were there and I was ready to slip my wrists. And I heard my mom yell. And because of the responsibility that I felt I needed to be to my parents, I stopped. And she was yelling for me and not in a bad way. It was just kind of, you know, Chrissy, where are you? You know, that type of thing, but yelling to find me throughout the house. And um, it was an old farmhouse. There were three floors plus a basement. This was up in Pennsylvania. So the door was locked and I knew I had to stop. It was that divine intervention, probably knowing everything I know now that has happened in my life along the way. That was my higher power, my angels, and of course, we'll get to Archangel Michael, um, saying, mm -mm -mm, I've got bigger, better things for you, Christine. <laughs> let me let me intervene here. <laughs> so I, that was my first attempt, or there's some sort of facsimile thereof. <laughs> we'll say, we'll say this, the, well, that's kind of a, how would we how would we put that? We would say that was a pre-planning. Right. Right. Your first pre-planning. So the, you got an intervention before you you actually took that step. So that's a positive thing. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Here I here I am. <laughs> here you are. I mean the universe always I think you know, I believe that the universe always puts those in front of us that uh, need to be there at the time that they're supposed to be, and sounds like that's what took place there. Um, I know that your journey continues and, and you know, I'm sorry to, to pull you through these incidents all over again, but I think that they're important to let others know that are listening and watching that, um, you know, no matter what you've been through, there's always hope at the end of the tunnel that you, there's always a light there that you can reach for. And there's always help out there when you can, when you, when you least expect it or, yes. or when you reach out to expect it, there's always going to be help somewhere for you. Yes. What happened when you were about 20 years old? <laughs> College, Michigan. My friends and I decided to go to a dance party and there was a DJ there. And I, because of, okay, this is where it's going to get a little dicey. Um, definitely a forewarning here that anybody that cannot handle any sexual conversation should probably leave or cover their ears. So because of all the childhood abuse that I went through, I did not realize how much of a sex addict I became. 
Now, is it clinically? I don't know. All I know is I needed to, like drugs and alcohol, you needed to feed the fix. I, I was living in Michigan, going to school, still had a home with my family in Pennsylvania. I was seeing a gentleman in Pennsylvania, and I was also seeing a gentleman in Michigan. For whatever reason, I ended up going to this party. I don't even think he was there, and this was in Michigan, and I don't think he was there. It was maybe four or five of us that were there. We were dancing, having fun. Now, because of what I saw with my brother, I was not a drinker. I did not, I did not do drugs. I did not drink. I smoked cigarettes. I had to be the good girl. So um, I think maybe I had a sip or two of beer. Beer never did anything for me. I found out, obviously, later in life that hardcore alcohol is more my speed. So we were at this party, and, and I remember what I was wearing, and I don't know why. Um, and this is back in, so I went to school. I graduated high school 83, so maybe 84, 85. And I had on guest jeans. Those were the big thing back then. And I had on a black um, Angora sweater. And apparently the DJ was very much attracted to black. He took his break and came over, started talking to us. I had no interest. Um, asked to get me a drink. I said, okay, I probably punch or whatever. Obviously, I know now that drink was spiked. The next thing I know is I am waking up in a strange room on a bed, spread eagle tied to it, completely naked, and wondering what the, you know, the rest. How it happened? <laughs> what, yeah. The, it was like, it was, it was like reliving certain things throughout my previous years all over again. And of course, you know, you go into anybody that's been raped, you go into, again, just let it be over and done with. Only his over and done with wasn't over and done with. I had to eat when he told me to eat, go to the bathroom when he told me to go to the bathroom, brush my teeth when he told me to brush my teeth, go in the shower. He washed me. He fed me. He, I pretty much the only time I could get off that bed was to go to the bathroom and to take a shower. It was the worst four days, five days. I, I couldn't even tell you. I lost track of time that I had ever gone through. I never, I did not think I would survive it. And at some point you, you say to yourself, you know, you look up and you go, just take me, just get it over and done with. So I don't have to go through this pain anymore. <clears throat> I don't know how long, how much time had passed. And obviously the sexual abuse continued. Um, and he actually, he actually kept me tied to the bed and said a few times throughout those couple of days, I'm leaving, I'll be back, you better be here. I'm thinking, where the hell am I going to go? I'm tied to the bed, I can't move. 
so he would leave, come back, and the same thing would just happen over and over and over. I, I, I mean, I felt like a rag doll. Um, oh, my stomach is doing. Sorry. Um, well, and, and if I can, uh, go ahead. As a as a law enforcement officer that investigated situations similar to yours, you know, realistically, <coughs> excuse me, these type of individuals. Pardon my sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> These type of individuals um, are very sadistic and they're cruel and uh, they're controlling. And um, uh, uh, how did you escape? How did you get away? <laughs> I didn't. He took me home. He just took you home. After, after he was done and he felt that he had enough, um, I didn't find out till after the fact that not only did he DJ at night, but he was a limo driver. And now remember, I met him at this party, but he took me to my apartment. And at that point, I lived alone up on the second or third floor. And he put me in the limo, of course, drugged me again, not near as bad as <clears throat> the first time going to his place. I remember leaving his his home which by the way was in the middle of nowhere it was like a trailer i can remember the snow on the ground um i was half dressed um i don't think i had my shoes on put me in his limo in the back seat i kind of slumped down i don't remember a whole bunch again because of the drugs and the next thing i know you know and the, and the ride was maybe maybe 20 minutes long i can remember him pulling up to my apartment building he opened the door and he said i remember i know where you live you speak about this to anyone i will kill you and you could see in his eyes the Intense. The truth. The, yes, absolutely. So for the next three days, I stayed in my apartment. I did not answer the phone. I did not answer the door. I would look out every once in a while. I would look out the front window and his limo would be there. It would be parked there. So he, he basically stalked me for a few days afterwards. It was, it, it was an extremely situation after about three days of being locked and of course missing school I, the next thing i i know uh, I, there was huge pounding on my door and of course i'm freaking out going oh my gosh please don't let this be him please don't let this be him i can't go through this again and of course back then we didn't know better to, to go to the hospital to call the police so, you know he said if you call the police you know the the whole spiel that you get and <clears throat> I looked out the window and there was a, um, a state trooper. What had happened when, in fact, when I opened the door, it was two state troopers. And what had happened was my father got extremely concerned that I wasn't answering the phone. Apparently the school had called cause I hadn't showed up. So he sent the state police to check up on me. And I, I made some excuse. I couldn't even tell you what it was. I made some excuse that, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, 
dad, I'm okay. You know, getting on the phone with it. Why didn't you answer your phone? You know, oh, I don't know. I was studying. I sick. You know, you come up with some excuse because mm-hmm. you don't want to to have to go through that shame and guilt that this happened to you. And and that everything, you know, I never saw him again. He, I think he, you know, probably saw the police there and. Whatever happened to him, I have no no idea, no clue. It's unfortunately he wasn't held to account for his actions. This is not blaming you for not calling the cops. First and foremost, please understand that statement. Uh, <laughs> just as a as a father of two daughters, a husband to to a wife, as a son, as a brother, um, you know, it's it's these type of individuals. Uh, need to be removed from society and uh, put away someplace for an extremely long period of time. And that's just the nice way to put that. Six feet would be more my way of putting it, but... Hey, this works. <laughs> See, you were reading my mind. I did not say that out loud. Like, I, I did. Can, I can keep my pension. <laughs> Uh, but you, but you were reading my mind. It worked. <laughs> so, <clears throat> during your time period uh, throughout your life, your journey has already taken from the, from an early age, from four or five years old, all the way up through this, you know, around what twenty twenty years old uh, range. Mm-hmm. You had already experienced more than anyone could ever imagine in regard to life and how life was treating you and and so forth. So, understandably, the depression. I'm sure the depression and the anger and the guilt and the shame and everything that went along with that compounded upon itself. Um, did you did you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Were you able to 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 kind of start making progress for a a, a better environment for yourself? Oh hell no! Hell no! <laughs> hell no! <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's talk chapter two. <laughs> Right. Well, we could we could skip a a little bit. So in my third year of college is, Chris, that's a story all in itself. I met my first husband. I I do have a lot of time slots for shows. We can, you know, we can get there. Right. Um, So I met my first husband. Um, Of course. Well, so. I was, I was 21, 22, uh, found out I got pregnant. Um, we got married. It wasn't totally agreeable between the two of us, but we ended up together 20, 21 years, 22 years. That first met when we had three beautiful children, I have three absolutely beautiful children. They are so good. They've gone through their, their issues as well. Um, I was not a perfect mother, that's for sure. I was not even a great mother. And I've told them this, and I will continue to tell them, don't go by my actions. Don't don't follow what I did. Do the opposite of what I did with your children. Um, th- they know. They, 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 they know. They lived with it. So in the first five years of that first marriage, um, my first husband and I, their father, got addicted to cocaine. I remember it was the 80s, so it was all around. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, um, 
the cocaine use brought out the the sex addict again. I um, ended up having an affair with the dealer. The then husband found out about it, beat the shit. Oh, sorry, beat the crap out of him, beat the crap out of me. Had a miscarriage, didn't know. Um, then became pregnant again. Still doing cocaine. Had a different dealer. Um, first five years of the marriage were awful. Um, my as my as my third. My second son, my third child, I have three children, two boys and a girl, the girl's in the middle. So as my, and the cocaine use got really bad, like we were doing two, at least two eight balls a night. Um, it, it went from snorting to smoking to he actually started injecting. And that's where I kind of drew the line. I was like, mm, I'm not putting that in my veins. This is bad enough. I had one child already. That was at home as we were still doing the cocaine, gave birth to my daughter, had medical issues with her because of my cocaine use while I was pregnant. Not proud of it. Please don't misunderstand. I am not proud of any of this. Um, third child came along, still doing cocaine. Two days before he was born was actually my last time that I had um, smoked any. I'm in the delivery room. Now, our family had suspected, my parents and his parents had suspected because we were going way off the deep end. I'm in the delivery room. The head is crowning, and my OBGYN comes in and says, um, Christine, I understand we have a drug problem. And, of course, I'm going, mm, yes. <laughs> you know, I wanted to admit it at that point. <laughs> Fix whatever he has. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The bad part about that is because I admitted it, they took my son away from me immediately. I could not see him. I could not hold him. As soon as he was born, he was gone. And they pretty much bribed me and and did their thing. Basically, they said, um, we'll give you your son if you'll sign these documents to get treatment. Um, I didn't like the way they went about it, but obviously it turned out to be a good thing. So he and I were together, um, you know, we, we kicked the cocaine, we both got sober, but as anybody that knows that goes through AANA, the only thing you do is trade one addiction for another. And that's what I did. I traded that cocaine that many years later, I, we stayed clean, we stayed sober. Um, the marriage got a little rocky here and there, as every marriage does. Um, but we were together 20 some years and we kind of just grew apart. I started, I started looking elsewhere and I got caught cheating on him. So I got kicked out of the house. Um, and then I thought, well, now I'm free. You know, I've got, you know, I, I'm, I'm a free woman. I, I mean, and please don't misunderstand. This was probably one of the worst times of my life because I had been, because I thought I was free, I had been ganged raped so many more times. I had committed, tried to commit suicide again because of all everything that, it, because nothing was resolved. Nothing was fixed from all the childhood trauma, all the things that I had been through with the sexual abuse and the, the attempted suicides and the depression and the mental health. Nothing was fixed. So here I was, single, going through divorce at, you know, I think it was... 40s, um, had gone through the, you know, the partying, um, 
you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then trying to get better on Sunday so that I could go to work on Monday, living on my own. I actually, for I think like 12 weeks, I lived in this total roach dump that even though there was a lock on the door, that's how these guys would follow me home from the bar or, you know, invite other friends. And the next thing I know, there's four or five guys in my place and I'm going, oh my God, not again. You know, what am I doing? But you don't fix it. You don't, I, you don't know how. Um, so that was about two, two and a half years between the first marriage that that was my fault that it ended. Although we were, we both knew that we had just after 20 some years, we had just had different visions, different ideas of where the kids were getting older. I wanted to do things. I wanted to go places. And one thing I will never take away from my children's father is that he was an absolutely wonderful father. He always provided for them. He always did things with them. Um, I will never take that away from him. I have said that from day one, he has been an excellent father just a really lousy husband. But so my, my couple of years, two and a half years of being single, what I thought would be, you know, liberating and great turned out to be not so great. That's when I rediscovered alcohol and rediscovered drugs and um, not rediscovered, but, you know, started reusing again and got with men that I should definitely not have been with, um, the, the drinking and driving. And again, you know, my Howard, higher power was with me throughout all of this. I, you know, I actually crashed my bike. I ended up with a motorcycle. I ended up, um, at some guy's house that I woke up, you know, out of a, a black in, you know, a blackout and I'm going, why am I here? Oh my God. I get on my motorcycle, you know, this is, you know, I left the bar, took my motorcycle to his house in a blackout, a total blackout. I do not remember driving a motorcycle at all. And, um, I, you know, obviously I'm not dressed and I get dressed and I get on my motorcycle and, you know, I told everybody that, you know, my family that I hit some gravel and that's how the bike went down. Well, what happened was I was too damn drunk. I shouldn't have been driving. I came up to a stop sign and I couldn't, I had no balance and down I went. Two black guys, I was scraped from here all the way down here, here, elbows, knees, knuckles, pipe burns on my legs. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. Uh, you know, like I said, it, it, it was it was not good. It, things that I did, not good, not good. And then, and then my knight in shining armor showed up <laughs> in 2000. Oh, and of course I got yeah. my, finally did, finally did get a DUI in my car. Um, that, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. Sometimes getting a DUI will wake you up. Sometimes wrecking your motorcycle will wake you up. Yeah, it didn't. But it didn't. <laughs> No. Yeah, it, it's no. Uh, life is a journey, and uh, yours has been uh, uh, tumultuous, <laughs> to say the least. I guess. Um, yes. Obviously, though, you you have continued to move forward, and you you you've been able to kind of come out on the top end of all of this, everything that you've uh, experienced through life, both with the drug and alcohol addiction, the molestation, the sexual assault, the Trauma, the depression, the anger, 
you know, you've been able to kind of understand it a little better from from different perspectives, I think. And in regard to that, it allowed you to uh, kind of take the next step in healing yourself along with others. Correct? Yes. Yes, that is correct. I um, About eight months ago, I, I was... I moved to Tennessee and this was, you know, obviously the second marriage, which we didn't even cover. Second marriage was a disaster. That's where all the abuse took place. The physical, the mental, the sexual, the verbal, the psychological, I mean, every abuse possible I endured with this man. But I discovered, I, I, I thought I wanted to be a business consultant. Okay. I, my parents were always small business. So I always thought I had to do small business and I had, uh, I had my own computer business. I had my own storage facility. I've worked for other small businesses. I've been involved with everything from restaurants, real estate, you know, pressure washing, whatever, however I could make a mm -hmm. buck. Okay. But I realized that I was missing something, but I had been going through a coaching program, an online virtual coach program. And I thought, okay, maybe the, yeah. what had happened was that all my, all my um, clients were telling me, you need to be a coach. You need to be a coach. Apparently I'm very motivational and, you know, upbeat. And that's just me. That's just how I handled, I guess, all the trauma in my life. Well, plus you come so, from life experience, not just book experience. You come from life exactly. experience. Exactly. So about halfway through this coaching program, here again is where my higher power and, and, and I believe Michael stepped in and I had one of those aha moments. And when you and, say Michael, just to clarify, Archangel Michael. Uh, yes. Yes. Archangel Michael. Yeah. Sorry. He and I are on first name terms. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can say I'm there. <laughs> right. Right. It's almost like Michael so, to Michael. See? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but about halfway through um, my coaching program, I had one of those aha moments and the light bulb went off. And I realized that with everything that I had been through, all the abuse, all the sexual assault, all the addictions, um, dying on the hospital table twice, surviving suicide attempts, um, with everything that I had been through, I knew I had to help other women. And when I started looking into the statistics, and in the U.S. here, one in four women will suffer some sort of abuse in their lifetime. One in seven, and you probably know this, Michael, one in seven do not make it out alive from abuse from abuse and domestic violence, okay? And that that that's a statistic we can change. And I, I know how to change it. I know where to change it. And this is why I do this. And this is why I have my sassy coaching program. Because if I can touch just one woman, one place in her to get out, communicate, and teach our next generations what to do and what not to do, whether you've been a victim of abuse or not, you know, because it takes two. So not only do we have to help the woman that's been abused, but we need to help that little girl so that she does not get into that situation. So that's where, where 
my my life took a turn. Um, it was just one of those moments that I was like, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to. I have no idea why. I have no idea if I'm doing it the right way. I, I'm led by him. Um, you know, when I, when, I, when I have these interviews, I, I kind of let him come through and he kind of helps me with what I need to say and how I need to say it. Um, he has given me so much, because you know, I know you know that um, we don't talk about it. We do not talk about abuse. And there still are law enforcement, I hate to say it, and I experienced it firsthand here in Tennessee. There are still law enforcement officers out there that go, now, now, it's okay. You just, you know, it's all right that they placated and they put it aside and they don't believe, yeah, especially the, the good old Southern boys. I, I see it up here and I, mm. I, I, I have to say this out loud because obviously my, my career was in law enforcement. There are those of the old school nature and of the good old boy nature that unfortunately um, act this way and unfortunately perform their job this way and they fail the system. They fail yeah. the system, they fail the individuals, they fail the victims and the perpetrators. They fail them all because that whole arena, the victim, the perpetrator, and the system all need to work together in order to resolve that issue, to get somebody out of that situation and fix it so that it doesn't happen again. And those individuals that just pat you on the back and say, they're there, don't need to be a cop. Yeah, I know. And I was a like sergeant. I, said, I can tell you, I, I would have them removed from my team in a heartbeat. And like I said, I unfortunately I experienced it even in the year it happened last year. So even in the year 2021, it still happens. Yeah, and that's, it's a, still and that's very unfortunate. That 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 needs to change. People need eyes need to open up. And unfortunately, over the last few years. Um, this is a whole different conversation. Uh, I think that uh, doors were open that allowed people crawl, to crawl out from under rocks that belong back under those rocks. And that's, my, that's just my personal opinion. Um, and those individuals that uh, pat somebody on the back and placate them um, are the ones that uh, need to crawl back under the rocks. Yes. They're part of that group. Yes. So. Yes. Hey, so that's why I I do what I do so that I can <laughs> and, and why I am so adamant about telling my story and tell because if it hits one woman, if she has hears my story and says, you know what, mine's not as bad or you know what, mine is just as bad or even if it's holy crap, I've gone through worse. But, you know, if this woman can do it at 50 some years old and I'm only 20, 30 years old, if she can get out, I can get out. I, we have to open those lines of communication. We have to we have to learn, relearn how to have conversations with with our spouses, with the guys we're dating, with the women we're dating. And, and this is not just for women that have been abused. OK, the for more I open. Absolutely. And the more I open up about this and the more I talk about it, the more people actually come forward and say, can I tell you my story? Absolutely. Tell me your story. I want to know. Because the more we talk about it, the more we can change it and fix it.
Exactly. And sexual abuse in, in molestation is not just on, like you said a few minutes ago, it can happen to anybody, any age, male or female, yes. young to old. It can happen to anybody. So, yes. And I think I will leave some, uh, some, some contact information, obviously, at the in, in the show notes. Um, of this particular episode to make sure that those individuals who are seeking help can either reach out to you or if they yes. feel that they can't, then I'll give them a national hotline that they can reach out to as well. And that's anonymous um, so that somebody can get some help or and or get a, 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 an intervention, you know, to get to take place. Um, so we'll we'll make sure that gets put in there. Uh, but I have, look, you mentioned it, so now I got to ask. Okay. You, you said you died twice on the table. So I can did. we touch on that in a minute? What happened when you died twice on the table? Are there two different times I, or the I same wish, No, no, it was the same time. And I wish I could tell you more. And I wish I could tell you that I saw the bright light or that I talked to, you know, past family members. I wish I could tell you all of that. That never happened. Um, <clears throat> so my alcohol abuse um, definitely escalated because of the physical and verbal and sexual and psychological and everything, every other abuse that you could possibly imagine. Because the alcohol was the easiest way to handle the pain. Now, when I say pain, physical abuse heals. We heal, okay? I had a gunshot wound in my head. It's healed. I may have a scar there. It's healed. I got my wrist broken with a rubber mallet. It's healed. Put the cast on six weeks. It's healed. Had three cracked ribs. They're healed. Black eyes, bruises, you know, the body used as a punching bag. That all heals. But it's that psychological part that doesn't. So the best way to deal with that, or so we think, is to turn to drugs and alcohol. And that's when my alcohol abuse got really, really bad. So bad, in fact, that once again, Archangel Michael stepped in. I should back up a little bit because I had, I knew it was getting bad. And I knew, and anybody out there, anybody that even thinks that they're an alcoholic or may have an alcohol problem or drug problem, what I said to myself was many, many times, and obviously with the suicide attempts, not failed, successful. Well, I, I survived. <laughs> um, I had said many times, and especially through this relationship, because it was so abusive on so many levels, I had said, either put me in the ground or put me in the hospital, one or the other. And I, many times, and when I say many times, like probably every morning when I would wake up from, you know, being sore and beat and, you know, going in and looking in the mirror. Okay, what am I going to have to cover this time? You know, how much makeup is going to take care of a black eye today? Um, okay, well, that, that one's not too bad. I can cover it with a shirt. So that's exactly what he did. He put me in the hospital. As it turned out, about a week before this, once again, he was there. We came back, meaning the ex and I, we came back from fishing. And it was a Saturday or Sunday. I think it was a Saturday. That was in Florida. 
And that was one of the things that we did do was we'd go fishing every weekend. We got, and the drinking got so bad that I was drinking in the morning, probably even more so than him. Um, so I would take a little flask, you know, the little pint bottle, fill it with my drug of choice for alcohol was Captain Morgan Silver. Always straight, never mixed it. Okay, that, that's how bad it was. So if I thought I wasn't doing something to my inside of my body, I was very much mistaken. So about a week before, whatever, whatever happened, we, we came home, he started drinking again, and he was drinking tequila. I was drinking rum, but I wasn't buzzed. I wasn't drunk. I still had my wits about me. And something told me to pick up my phone. He was passed out on the sofa. Something told me to pick up the phone and I called our local non-emergency number for the local police. And I actually said to the woman, I said, I just need to talk to somebody about um, domestic violence, abuse, <laughs> you know, what's available out there? Who do I talk to? I really just wanted to talk to somebody. Not that that particular day was actually a really good day. He did not abuse me. He did. He was good verbally. He was good mentally. It was a good day. The fishing was kind of, but it was a good day. Why I picked up the phone and called, I will never know, but I don't need to know because, again, Archangel Michael intervened. I'll make it a little short here. I know you're pressed for time. So... What happened was, while I was on the phone, she connects me to a, the, the dispatch, connects me to a detective. And I said, I, I really don't need a detective. I just want some phone numbers that I can call Monday morning regarding, you know, abuse. And, well, he, he did everything he was supposed to do. I was not happy with him at the time, but... An individual that paid attention and listened. He did. He did. He did, without a doubt. He did exactly what what I hope every law enforcement officer could do out there. So the next thing I know, and, and through having a conversation, and actually I had to hang up and call him back because, of course, the, the now ex is screaming from the living room as I'm at the other end of the house in the bedroom. Um, Who are you talking to? Like, just the kids, honey, just the kids. So, you know, I said, I'll call you back and make sure he's passed out again. I don't know why. I should have just left it at that, but I didn't. So I called this detective back and he's asking me some questions. And at this point, I couldn't even, I don't even remember. I said, I know I was adamant about, I'm like, dude, I just need some phone numbers of who I can call Monday morning about domestic violence and abuse. Well, he, meaning the ex, got up again from the sofa, now screaming louder and sounding his normal pissed off self. That officer, that detective heard it. And before I could even hang up the phone with the detective, there's a knock on my front door. And there are two local police there and they are arresting this man. And of course, I'm adamant at this point. Wait, if this today was a good day, you know, he, he did not abuse me. I'm okay. These are scars from last week. These are bruises from last week, you know. I didn't know any better. So he ended up in jail. I ended up, again, 
I have always been now these last maybe three, six months basically saying, put me in the hospital or put me in the ground because it really was that bad. I mean, I, I joke and I kid, but this is, this is my, um, my way of handling so that I don't break down and cry. And those aren't good life choices. I mean, what, what I mean <laughs> no. is, and when I say life choices, I mean, when you get up in the morning, you should decide, do I want tea or do I want coffee? Do I want eggs and bacon? Do I want eggs and sausage? <laughs> Not, do, do I want to die, you know, or do I want to go in the hospital? The, from that perspective, those are not <laughs> no, the choices don't that you need to be making in your day. No, and I <laughs> and I don't I don't wish that on anybody. And it and obviously the addiction gets so bad it takes over. Anybody who's been through any type of addiction knows that that drug, whether it be a drug or alcohol, completely consumes your body. And now I've got a double whammy, and now I, I need my fix of alcohol, and I need to numb the pain of everything I'm going through with the abuse. So a few days goes by, and um, I get sick, violently sick. And this is back in 2016. Like diarrhea, vomiting, chills, sweats, fever. I mean, like through the roof fever. Um, Sick, sick as a dog. I'm, I'm dehydrated. Now he's in jail. He has since. Okay, I, I did post his bond because um, you know he's my husband. I do love. There's a side of me that does love him. I need to get him home. He's you know he's a you know provider of the family. <laughs> so I thought. I posted bond. He's out, but he has no contact. He cannot come with him, you know, so many feet of the house. If he needs something, he's, I have to leave. He has to come in. It's commonly standard. referred to as a restraining order. Yes. Yes. I get violently sick. I mean, violently sick. I know I asked for it in, in some way, shape or form, but not to be this sick. My youngest one, which, by the way, even though I didn't get to hold him when he was born, he is probably my my biggest hero. And that's where I get teary-eyed. All my kids are great. They all love me. They now know everything, that, almost everything that I've been through. They didn't know back then because, you know, we just keep that hush-hush. We don't tell our kids. That's a mistake. We have to tell somebody. And our kids are so, They are. They are. So my youngest one comes over and he says, Mom, if you're not better by the time I come back from, you know, by the time I get off work on Monday, you're going to the hospital. I was like, at that point, I'm not fighting anything as, as much as I'm strong. Oh, by the way, sassy is strong, assertive, smart, sexy, and independent. So as much as I am sassy, I did not fight with him. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just, you know, don't bring me any food. Bring me soup. I think he brought me, a, you know, some soup or something. So he comes over after work and he's like, mom, are you feeling any better? And of course I'm still, you know, puking, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, sweats and chills. I'm going from, you know, almost totally naked on my, my sofa to, you know, wrapped in, five layers of clothing and a blanket because the chills are so bad. That's the fever. So he takes me to the hospital and I still have my humor. I walk into the hospital. He comes in with me and um, she says, okay, sit down. I'm in triage. And she says, sit down. And she goes to 
you know, take my blood pressure on my right arm and she's pumping and pumping and pumping and you know, we're waiting, waiting. Yeah, I can hear the psst. Okay. She's looking at her, her equipment. She takes the cuff off and puts it on my left arm. Does it again. Uh, now I'm, I have no medical background whatsoever, but I, I know enough to know that, <laughs> and I've been to the hospital enough with my children <laughs> throughout their little incidences being kids that I know mm, too low. there's, a, <laughs> there's, there's something happening. So she says, Christine, let's put you, let's take you back to a bed. And I said, okay, what's going on? She says, I just want to take you back to the bed. And I said, Okay what's my blood pressure reading? And I think it was Michael, no lie. I think it was like 70 over 50. I mean, yeah. it was extremely low. And I said to, I said to her without skipping a beat, I said, see Nate, your mother's even too stubborn to die. <laughs> okay. Now the the nurse is, the nurse is kind of cracking up trying not to smile. My son's like, mom, this is serious business here. <laughs> I get onto the table again. She takes it a third time, still reading extremely low. You know, nurses coming and going now. I've got, you know, all kinds of things getting hooked up to me. Um, you know, everything from, you know, IVs and I can't, they even put a catheter in me. I'm like, why do I need a catheter? You know, <laughs> and now I got, you know, drips coming and they're taking blood. And, and, and through all of this, Michael, I had this, this absolutely enraged pain in my lower female region. I had no clue what it was. Now I had already gone through the, you know, menopause and the change of life. I, that happened at 45. I'm now, well, I don't know, maybe 50, 52, I think it was. And, um, you know, I've got all this stuff hooked up to me and the doctor comes in and, you know, the, the, and this was at night. So the ER doctor comes in and he does his thing and he's, you know, you know, feeling on the belly and okay, where does it hurt? You know, and as he's getting lower and lower, the pain is getting more, more and more intense. Now, because of everything that I've been through in my life, my threshold for pain is extremely high. I mean, I, you know, I've got tattoos, you know, I've got, I've had the piercings, you know, pain is, it doesn't even measure for me. So this pain was extremely intense. I'm telling him, oh, this is off the charts, doc. You know, this is like a 20. So the next thing I know is that the, the nurses are there and the doctors are doing their thing. And, you know, he's like, okay, you know, I'll be right back. And I, he closes the drape and I hear him. I will never forget these words and I have no idea why, but I will never forget these words. He goes out into the main part of the, the emergency room. And all I could hear is that is one sick girl. That is one sick girl. That is one sick girl. Like three times he's go. That is what I'm like. You're talking about me, right? Uh, I'm you, like, you, how bad? The old Robert De Niro. You, you, are you talking to me? Are you exactly. talking to me? Exactly. So the next gentleman that comes in is he's well, like drop dead gorgeous. Okay, and I'm like, I, now I'm I'm married. Okay, but I've gone through this BS with the ex. He wasn't an ex yet, but. Just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous man. And he's dressed in jeans and a really nice collared shirt, like an Izod type shirt. And he's he's just there. And I'm like, okay, well, hello, Doc, how you doing? <laughs> okay. He says, Christine, I, you know, 
do you mind if I tell? No, go right ahead. Now, you know, I'm a mom of three. I've been through shit through my life, okay? I have no qualms letting anybody see anything. If it makes me better, go for it, dude. So he's he's like, you know, doing his exam. And he says that when he's all done, he said, well, I'm my name is so-and-so and I'm a surgeon. I said, oh, okay. Where are we at, Doc? And he says... I'd like to do exploratory surgery. I said, okay, why? And he said, "Ah, here comes, now I just knew it. And he says, I want to, um, I just want to make sure that you you don't have ovarian cancer. Now there's that C word. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And it really didn't even, with everything that I had already been through, cancer would be a blessing. Okay. Not, and not to, oh my God, don't take that the wrong way. Don't, you know, I do not diminish anybody that is going through cancer treatment or anything. I have friends that have gone through it. I don't diminish it in any way, shape or form. But for my life, it would have been, you know, I, it got me, it would get me out of the house, get me away from mm-hmm. this abuser. So we do the first surgery and he, he comes back after I wake up from the surgery. It's major surgery. I go full out and he says, mm, it's not cancer. I'm like, okay, what is it? What do we do? And he said, I'd like to open you up. And I was like, what do you mean open me up? And he says, I'd like to put you on the table again and actually really get in there and see what is going on. So Michael, long story short, um, I go in, I have the surgery. Basically I have a scar that runs from just below my chest all the way down to all the way down. Um, 70, 80, some staples were in my body. When he had me open on the table, he removed my gallbladder, my appendix, part of my colon, part of my intestine, and my whole left fallopian tube. The pain, the pain that was in there was infection that was just raging through my body. He said raging through my body. Holy smokes. <laughs> yes. So I and after this surgery, as I'm coming out of the anesthesia, I have a, you know, the breathing tube in my throat. And as I'm coming out, I can see the nurses, you know, coming and going and doing their thing and, you know, undressing and dressing and, you know, doing what nurses do. And I went and I grabbed this, the breathing tube and I started ripping it out of my mouth. I wanted to have a conversation with these ladies like, what are you doing? And I, as I'm trying to rip it out, one of the nurses caught me and I'm fighting her. I'm coming out of anesthesia anesthesia, and I'm fighting her. I ended up giving her um, nail marks on her hand. I wasn't trying to. So I did not have a really good reputation with the nurses. They were pretty mad at me, those couple, for a few days. Tried to make it up, tried to be humorous. So my surgeon finally comes in after um, after I come fully awake and in recovery. And recovery was not, not pleasant whatsoever. Um, his words to me were, Christine, if you take one more drink, you will die. And I said, that's a theory I don't want to test. What happened? And this is when I find out then that, um, you know, everything that was removed, the infection that was raging through my body, full-blown cirrhosis in my liver, okay? I'm looking at liver transplant now, but I got to get well from this surgery first. 
Um, you know, that was something that had been thrown around. Um, really didn't pay attention to it. eight weeks the first time in the hospital with that surgery full recovery i lost all i've lost you know i lost weight i lost body mass i lost muscle i mean i had to try and learn how to walk all over again and lift and you know move and everything it was the worst eight weeks of my life it's on the whole new life journey <laughs> exactly so somewhere in in recovery when the husband then husband decided to show up um for those few moments maybe five ten minutes 15 if i was lucky um is when he told me that i had died on the table twice in the second surgery and i have i again i have no recollection no I, I couldn't even tell you don't even remember it didn't didn't know so um Long story short, I, I come home after eight weeks. I <laughs> the abuse continued, just not the physical. It was a lot of the um, mental, the verbal. <clears throat> excuse me, the um, those little sayings, you know that yeah, now you're really damaged. You're not a whole person. Um, I mean, everything possible. And with being still a strong woman, <clears throat> I tried to get up one night to go to the bathroom by myself. Now you have to remember part of my colon was gone and part of my intestine. So I had not the colostomy bag, but the, the other one, the, the allostomy, I think they called it. So going to the bathroom was not fun. Um, having your allostomy bag break is not fun. I tried at one point, I tried to get myself off the sofa. Remember, I had no muscle in my legs. I ended up ripping out, I don't know how many staples. I had to go back to the hospital. So um, third surgery was, I forget what the third surgery was. Probably fix something. Oh, the third surgery was obviously to, to you know, eight months later, six months later. Um, what had happened though, in between all that is because my liver was shot. Um, and after the second time that I, well, actually, well, the first, the first and second, the, the um, exploratory surgery and the major surgery were all in one stay. So the third time going back to the hospital was getting the staples <laughs> restapled on where I ripped them out, trying to, I basically fell off the sofa, trying to get to the bathroom. And um, I ended up where, because my liver wasn't functioning properly, my body just would not, it was, it was, I, I, I looked like I was 10 months pregnant all the time. I had been retaining fluid. Um, so we had to go in for, for surgery number four, which was to put, and this is, like 13 months later, or I guess nine, 10 months later. Um, so we go back in to put a stent in my liver to try and get my liver to heal. And of course, I've changed my diet. I've changed my exercise. I'm getting up. I'm moving. I'm trying to get muscle built back on my body again. <clears throat> and remember, this all happened in 2016 and 2017 is when my last surgery was done. The ex did not leave the situation until 2018, and it was 
it was after that that I met Archangel Michael. And um, here I am, fourth surgery, the stent in my liver, trying to heal, trying to get better. And I'm doing okay. And I finally, uh, what happened was back in 2015, when I was basically shot in the head, okay, and that's a whole other story. That is when my turning point was. That is when I said, you know what, enough is enough. I have to get out of the situation. I have to, I cannot, because I will end up either in the ground or in the hospital. That's when I started to make a plan or what I thought was a plan. And that's one of the things that I, I try and teach my girls and ladies that come to me and my clients that it, the plan doesn't have to be perfect, but at least have something to look forward to, to get you to move to that point till you feel comfortable enough to leave that situation. You have to take the first step. Exactly. Exactly. So my plan got intervened by hospital and almost a year of surgeries and everything that I went through. But it did finally happen. I finally got enough strength and I got enough chutzpah to say, and I, and I tried to do it nicely. I tried to, to be you know, very diplomatic, have an adult conversation. Now, one of the things that you have to know about this man is not only is he an abuser, but he is very narcissistic, probably psychotic, he, he could probably be clinically diagnosed as psychotic, habitual liar, cheater, uh, you name it, you know, he, he had it all. So I had to, I tried to have an adult conversation with him and say, listen, you know, this isn't working. We need to do something. You know, I'm getting stronger. I'm getting better. Um, either you need to change or you're going to need to go. There's the door. Now, the house was my house, and it was in my name, so he had no legal claim to it. So he he left. He ended up going to stay with the girlfriend that he was cheating on me with. Stayed with her for, I think, six, seven months. Well, in that meantime, not only was I addicted and clean from alcohol and cocaine, but being in the hospital, in and out of the hospital, and dealing with um, paracentesis, which is where your your stomach just feels with fluid all the time, I got addicted to pain pills. Imagine that. So I found, I discovered fairly early on that this was a true addiction again, that I didn't really need the pain pills. And when I say pain pills, I mean everything. They gave me the fentanyl, tramadol. Oxys, uh, you name the pain pill, I had it. So I finally one morning I said, you know what? I'm addicted to pain pills. I need to get off this stuff. I can't, I can't keep going through these addictions. So I stopped taking my pain pills. He's out of the picture. Stop taking my pain pills. And the first, the first night was rough. It was rough. I went into bed when I say rough, well, you'll, you'll find out how rough. So I finally get myself to go into bed. Now, not, not only am I dealing with the pain coming back, but also coming off all these pain drugs. And I'm laying in bed 
and I'm trying to get comfortable and I'm trying to get, you know, please just give me a good night's sleep. Now you have to understand, but that before this moment, it's funny. I tease that, um, I'm a retired Catholic. Okay. I was brought up, you know, the whole Catholic faith, CCD classes, you know, going to church with my grandparents every Sunday morning, the whole, the whole nine yards. I had lost that faith, obviously, a long time ago. So I'm laying in bed and I'm going through this tremendous pain. My whole body hurts from head to toe, inside and out. And when I say that every cell in my body hurt, every cell in my body hurt, every cell, every single part of my body was in so much pain, so much agony that I, I started crying and I'm crying and I'm laying on my bed just, you know, by myself, my arms are open, my legs are open, I'm like, please. Again, once, once again, I'm praying to a God that I don't believe in, okay? Or so I thought. There I am. Please, please, please. You know, this is where you you start the the um, bargaining. You know, I'll do anything to take to take this pain away. I'll do it. Now, this is coming from a woman that has has tolerated so much pain in her life, physical. You know, everything. <clears throat> and I'm laying on my bed, and I'm please. I'll do anything. Just take this pain away. Take this pain away. And I'm crying, and I I know the tears are just flowing. And what do I do? How do I get over? How you know? Am I going to survive this? Out of everything that I've survived, this is what's going to kill me. And I'm I'm crying and crying, and I'm I'm kind of drifting into sleep as much as you can, basically from pure exhaustion. And. The next thing I know, as much as my eyes are heavy, they're not completely closed, but they're heavy, I feel a light. It's not cold. It's not hot. And I can see this light at the, at the end of my, my bed, but above it. And the light is just there. And it's, it's, it's bright, but it doesn't burn your eyes like the sun would. Um, it's not hot. It's not cold. And it's, it's coming closer. And I'm going to tear up again. That's okay. It's an honest, so, open yeah. and honest conversation. Yeah. These are happy tears. So as the light's coming closer and I can feel the love, I can still feel it today. It's a love that as humans, very few of us experience. We have a love for our children that is completely different than our spouses. We have a love for pets that is completely different than our children. But this love is so pure and honest and real. And as this light is coming closer, I really, at this point, I, I, I'm thinking, it's God. God is finally, you're answering my prayers after all this time? Now, these are just thoughts that are going through your head. And the next thing I know, I feel... 
I know now were the two wings coming under my body and lifting me off the bed. And as, as I'm being lifted and I'm being held and the love that I'm feeling and the brightness of the, I cannot explain the brightness of this light. It does not burn. It does not hurt your eyes. It's just so bright and pure. And so it's a white light that we will never see here on earth. And I'm being lifted off the bed and I realize that there's no pain in my body. Everything is fine in my body. There's nothing there. And the only thing I could feel is this love. And as he's holding me, and I still think it's God, I don't know any better. And as he's holding me, I could feel his head and the whisper that says, everything's going to be okay, Christine. And for that moment that I wish would last forever and lasted as long as it did, very slowly, I'm placed back on my bed and I can still feel the love, still feel the joy, and obviously no pain in my body whatsoever. And the light is now going back where it came from. And I drift off to sleep. I don't know if I dreamt. I, I don't know if I had any, any, anything whatsoever. I get up the next morning and I can tell it's morning by the light shining through my window. And I swung my, my legs over on the side of the bed and I went, wait. Did I dream that? Did that really happen? And I was like, no, 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 no. You know, you, this is just, you know, coming off the drugs and everything that you're... And I was like, no, 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 no. It was something inside me that was like, whoa, it really happened. Who can I tell? Who can I tell? You know, who? Oh, God, there's nobody in my life that I could possibly tell this to. Who's going to believe me? I kept it inside for a very long time. This happened, like I said, in 2018. And it hasn't been up until this year that I finally shared that story. And it wasn't until, and I, and I still thought it was God. And I happened to be walking somewhere, going somewhere, going into a spiritual shop. And I forget where I was. And I had to, this, this little old lady, kind of gypsy-like woman reminded me, is coming towards me and I'm going wherever I was going and we both kind of looked at each other and you know I didn't really think anything but she kind of stopped and she said you've been touched I said excuse me and she said you've been touched <laughs> I said again I said excuse me and um she she said you had an encounter with Archangel Michael and I said okay and I just kept right on walking and um that's how i knew i i i it was just an absolute, the gypsy woman 
<laughs> yes. I, like I said, I, I thought it was God. I, you know, I was like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, once I, when she told me that, I was like, okay, well, does God have wings? I don't think so. Only angels have wings. And then it wasn't until I, I ended up encountering somebody later on in these, these, this past year going through my healing that she definitely verified. She said, oh yeah, you, you're definitely divinely protected, Christine. And I'm like, well, I know that now with all the times that I should have died and didn't, you know, all the failed attempts at suicide or successes, you know, and everything that I had been through and everything that I endured that that's the only way to be able to explain is that Archangel Michael has been looking over me. And there are days, Michael, when I question it and I will take my dog for a walk and there'll be a, a feather on the ground that's Which not there. Kind of an angel. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's his little sign for me, you know, that, to, you know, or, or, or a rare bird that, you know, here in, in East Tennessee, we have goldfinches that, that are pretty elusive. I've seen three of them and they've all been times where I'm going, oh my gosh. Yeah, reaffirm, you know? reaffirm some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I will say that uh, I am also a Reformed Catholic, so we're there together. Okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So you know where you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> I am a Reformed Catholic. I am. Um, well, obviously, that all of that has brought you to um, your program for Sassy, and I uh, would like to talk about a little bit about that and uh, kind of share with people how they can get in touch with you in regard to that. Now, there's a couple of different places we put up um, on the screen, but uh, if you can also say it out loud, I would really appreciate it for our listeners out there. So, yes, how can we find you? <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Obviously, sassycoach.com um, had to uh, had to had to use the sassy again. Sassy is strong, assertive, smart, sexy, and independent. And I believe in the reason that came about. That's a long story too. But the reason I stuck with that is because I believe that as abuse, and I I don't like the word victims, but as women of abuse and men of abuse, um, I believe every woman has that essence in her, that sassy, but it got so squashed and trampled on and sat on and spit on and everything else that it takes somebody that has been there and been in the trenches to help bring that sassy back out. And that's what I try and do. I try and help women see that it's not gone. It's still there that they have that ability to find the sassy and say, yes, I can do this. I can, I'm better than him. I'm bigger than him. And I will make it way more than he ever thought I could. That's and brilliant. Of course, <laughs> thank you. And of course my Facebook page, which is sassy coach, Christine. And I'll make sure that information is in the uh, show notes for everybody so that they have easy access to finding you and connecting with you. I know that you've got, um, don't you have a free offer of some type that they can I reach do. out to? I do, I do. And that is, that's on, on the Facebook page. They can't miss it. And I'll make sure everybody gets it. I have a free ebook that's, that I'm giving away. And that is um, five badass letters to unblock and celebrate your sassy life. Um, goes into a little bit, definitely my, my, which we didn't touch on, um, the ebook definitely explains the whole gunshot wound and everything that went through there. Because again, that, um, that was my defining moment. That was where I contemplated either suicide or homicide. I chose neither. Um, 
so yes, I have that. I'm also a, a Mary Kay consultant, so I'm offering free product because I think every woman should not only be beautiful on the inside, we need to be beautiful on the outside. We need to fake it till we make it. I know some women don't like that, but you know what? If we can help them get to feel good, then that can help from the inside. When you um, look good, you feel good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a free, I, and I always gift a free session. We always, and if I need to do another one, I can do up to two free sessions where we get together. We talk through zoom, just like this, um, figure out, you know, where you want to go. What do you want to do? What is your path in life? What does your sassy mean to you? And, and of course a whole bunch of other stuff. So yeah, I'll make sure make everything is, in, <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure everything's included in that. That brings us to my question. This is one more thing yes. before you go. So yes. before we go, is there any words of wisdom? Yes, yes. Communicate. We have to communicate. We have to have conversations. We have to bring certain topics to the surface. We have to not be afraid to say, hey, you okay? And if you, your gut tells you you're not okay or that that person's not okay, push the envelope a little bit. My biggest tip is if, even if it's just a mental health issue, whether it's abuse or not abuse, get that person in a vehicle, take them for a drive. They're a captive audience and just decide and, and let that person know, listen, I think there's something going on. I'm not stopping this car until we get this resolved, till we figure it out. And we're going to do this together. Whatever that means, if we need to find a professional, if we need to find a coach, if we need to find you know somebody else, a law enforcement officer, whatever it is, but we have to open these lines of communication. We need to teach our youth that some things are not acceptable. They're not acceptable. Brilliant words of wisdom. Communication is the Thank key you. to success. Yes. Christine, thank you very much for sharing your journey. Uh, amazing you. journey you. where you came from and where you are at now. Thank you for taking people's lives and moving them forward in a very positive way and helping to contribute to society in that manner. Uh, giving people hope and uh, the fact that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you just have to reach for it. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved. <laughs>